Good morning. How is everyone? Good? Okay. All right. Everyone doing okay with the heat? Uh, so I don't care how hot it gets. My wife and I were, were not arguing, but um, intensely debating the other day. The, uh, I don't care how hot it gets. I would rather have that than the winter. I hate the winter so much. And so, yes, applause. I got applause over here. So, yeah, I can't, uh, can't handle the, the freezing cold. Glad you guys are here this morning. We have been working through um, a very short book of the Bible called First Peter, which was a letter written from Peter to, to a group of churches um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 62 to 64 AD during the first century. We're, we're closing it out um, this morning. We're gonna do chapter five, which is very, very short, but very, very important. If you haven't been here, what this book of the Bible is about and the reason why it is so relevant and so important for us to go back and study today is in the Western world, we're starting to see the genesis of the things that they were dealing with in the first century as Christians. And what they were dealing with was they were being exiled, literally exiled, kicked out of their homeland, being persecuted, some of them being arrested, killed. Eventually, that's what happened to Peter. Um, he was arrested and, and crucified upside down by Caesar Nero um, several years after he wrote this, but not long after he wrote this. But we're starting to see a lot of the things that, that Peter talks about and, and teaches the church about and encourages the church to stand firm in their faith during these times. We're starting to experience that a little bit. So this book of the Bible kind of comes to life a little bit more uh, in our present era. So we'll talk about that. If you weren't here last week, we did chapter four, and it was a very sobering lesson. It was um, a little bit more heavy content, but very, very important. And what we talked about last week in chapter four was this, is that all of us will experience one of two fires. We will either experience by choice the, the refining fire of God. What that means is in this life, we will go through suffering, we will through go, go through hard times and persecution, but that is intended to happen to us by God to make us more like God, that he gets the impurities out of us, that, 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 that he cleans us up, polishes us, if you will, right? Like a metallurgist would do with, with gold when it is refined, and we start to look more like our creator. We will either experience that fire, which is difficult, or if we evade the fires of, of God, the refining fire of God, we will inevitably face a second fire, which is the fire of God's judgment. And God does not want us to experience his wrath and his judgment. That is not his intention for us. But if we evade following Christ in this life, we, we will face another fire. That's what we talked about. This week, what we're gonna talk about is this. As Peter closes out this letter, again, very short, it's mostly a conclusion. He's gonna to talk to church leadership and then he's gonna conclude with kind of summarizing what he's been talking about during this letter. We're simply gonna talk about standing firm in our faith and how we are to resist evil. That's what we're gonna talk about. So you should have got a notes handout when you came in. We were trying to reduce the amount of TVs in here, make it look less like Buffalo Wild Wings and more like a church. So um, in doing that, though, we've put some bigger screens up, but if you're way back in the corners and you're having a hard time seeing the screens, everything is on the notes handouts. Uh, everything is on the app, the Experience Community app. If you have a Bible, we are in 1 Peter chapter 5, right after the book of James. We'll get through it relatively quick. I hope it encourages you. 
And um, even though we will talk about some serious stuff, I hope you, I hope you leave here feeling um, more equipped, okay? So let me pray. We'll dive into this, and we'll see where God takes us, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, we live in interesting times, confusing times. We live in aggressive times, Lord. And in the middle of all this, Father, I pray, Lord, that, that, that we, as believers, and if people are not believers in this room, Lord, I, I pray that they come to have a faith in you. But I pray, Lord, that we can stand firm, that we can hold on to the truth, that we can love people, love you, God, and, and hold on to the truth of the word of God. So Lord, I pray this morning that you keep your hand on our church. Not just our church, we pray that you keep your hand on every church in our city. We pray that you keep your hand on our other campuses and the churches in those cities. We pray that everything we do this morning, that it honors you, that it blesses not only you and your kingdom, but blesses the city we live in, God, the people that we're around. Lord, give me wisdom as I speak today, and I pray that every word that I say is directly a reflection of your heart, God, and what you want for us to hear. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in verse five, this is Peter writing, and um, we'll move on from 1 Peter, we'll go into 2 Peter, and then after that, we're gonna get into the book of Esther, uh, which I'm looking forward to. The only book of the Bible that never mentions God. So, interesting, fun fact. Okay, right. <laughs> chapter five, 1 Peter. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseen out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So as Peter ends this letter, he encourages the leaders of the local churches. And the reason why he focuses on the leaders of the local churches, and this does not make the leader of a church any more important than the congregants of a church, but the first person who will probably experience persecution, hardship, criticism, whatever the case may be, will be the leader of the church. And so he looks at the leaders or he writes to the leaders and he says, you gotta stand strong, right? You have to lead well, you, you have to be close to God. He's encouraging them because they're probably gonna suffer first. Now he uses the term elders and we don't typically use that term a lot in society unless we're talking about elderly, people older than us, but, but the term elders is a very churchy term, right? It's a biblical term. And, and the best definition for elders are the people who oversee the integrity of the church. And so these are the people that kind of step back from a 30,000 foot view. They pray for the church. They give counsel in the church. They oversee the spiritual health, or one would say the vision, the mission of the church. And in my case, as an elder, my role is to teach the church. So these are the elders of the church, the leadership of the church. So he's writing to the leadership of the church, but he's specifically talking to pastors in this point. And so pastors can also be elders. I'm an elder at this campus, Kyle is an elder at this campus, and then we have three volunteer lay leader elders that help us kind of oversee the integrity of the church. And all of our campuses have elders. So verse two tells the pastors, as a leader of the church, don't lead out of compulsion, which means don't lead out of just an obligation, right? You got nothing else to do. 
Might as well be a pastor. I don't know why you would choose that path if you had other options, right? But he says, you're not to do this out of compulsion. You're not to do this to, to, to do it to get rich. It's a problem in American Christianity with some pastors, but you're not to do it for greed of money. You're not to lord over those that are entrusted to you, but we are to lead by example. And unfortunately, in the United States, and I'm not here to slander or talk bad about people, even though the next slide is going to appear that way, we have very few examples of genuine, honest, humble, Bible-teaching leaders of churches in the United States. And it's a, it's a shame that we're not to lead by telling you how to live, right? You give money to the church and you live humbly. I'm gonna go home to my $4 million mansion, right? And not do anything. That's not leading by example. And so we are to lead by a certain standard. That's what we're called to do because leadership matters and everything trickles down from leadership. So here's the thing, this is gonna be harsh, but, but we just have to be honest this morning. In the United States, we have valued personality over substance. Sometimes people share clips of, of very, very famous pastors and I see them on social media and people are like, oh, amen to this. And I'm like, what did they say? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It'll have some, you know, like famous celebrity pastor on there and he's like, listen, listen, you're going this way, but hold on, hold on. God says, go this way. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, mind blown. And I'm like, what? What is this? But we're more attracted to personality than we are substance. That's why Paul said, some of you say you follow Apollos, some of you say you follow Cephas, some of you say you follow God, right? And so this is, what, this is what Paul was talking about. Don't follow personalities. Make sure there's substance behind the person that is teaching you. We prefer ease over truth. We do not want someone to tell us the truth. We want someone to tell us what we already want to hear. That's why on a weekly basis, we get dozens of people messaging us from local, you know, and from all over the country and sometimes all over the world. They're like, thinking about coming to your church, but do you do this, 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 and this? And do you agree with me on this, 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 and this? And I'm like, what's the point of coming here if you already know everything and, and you're making, you're interviewing me before you come here? What's the point? If you don't think you can learn anything from me, I wouldn't waste your time. And so that's what we prefer though, ease over, over truth or being taught. We prefer entertainment over discipleship. That's what we prefer in the American church. And now the problem is we have more motivational speeches, speakers than we do shepherds. And I'm telling you, it has not been good for us in the United States. It has not been good for the church. So here's the thing. You should expect a lot out of me. You should expect the truth out of me. You should expect humility out of me. You should expect me to be an example of, of how, and I'm not perfect by any stretch. Anyone who knows me well knows this but you should expect a high standard out of me, but that's not it. I should also expect a very high standard out of you. You should expect high standard out of your leadership and leadership should expect a high amount of, of, of production, if you will, of, of, of living to a righteous standard by the congregation. We have not done a service to each other by not asking each other to step up to the next level because I think that's what God wants out of us, a deeper, more biblical relationship with him. So listen, this is not just for pastors. If you're a Christian in this room, you will lead in some capacity, whether that be a parent, whether that be a friend that disciples a non-believing friend into a relationship with God, all of us lead on some level and we're all gonna be held accountable by the great shepherd. 
If God has given us the Holy Spirit and has given us influence, we're gonna be held accountable for that influence. And if we have been good stewards of that influence, we receive, as Peter says, an unfading crown of glory, a reward. So holding on to our integrity, leading with integrity, serving with integrity is not just a call for church leadership. It's a call for every single Christian, but we will be rewarded for that. God is faithful in rewarding us for that. All of that begins with humility, okay? There's some good stuff here. In the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, I highlighted this, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. So all throughout the Bible, look, all throughout the Bible, from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, the theme of humility versus arrogance, right, runs through the entire Bible. It was arrogance that got humanity in trouble in the first place in Genesis chapter three, right? The devil shows up to Adam and Eve and says, who says you can't be like God? And they're like, that's right, who says I can't be like God? And they ate the fruit and here we are, right? And all throughout the entire Bible, you see that God pushes away from arrogant people because arrogance basically says we don't need God. So God goes, okay, right? He pushes away from arrogance, but he draws near to humble people. So we are not only told what to do, what are we to do? We're to clothe ourselves with humility, especially when it comes to church leadership, especially when it comes to any leadership that God has put above us, we are to clothe ourselves with humility. Not only are we told what to do, look at how good the Bible is. We're told why we are to do it. And if you're a parent in this room, do your kids a favor. Don't just tell them what to do, explain to them why they should or should not do such actions, right? And this is what the Bible tells us. Why do we clothe ourselves with humility? Because God draws close to us when we're humble and he pushes away from us, it's Bible, I just read it, when we're arrogant. This is why we, we clothe ourselves with humility. So we need to ask ourselves, do we have a spirit of cooperation? If we are humble and if we cooperate with the God-given authority in our lives, God exalts us, God honors us, God gives us authority at the proper time. But, but here's the thing. It's not that you cannot ask leadership questions. At the end of every single service, I'll do it today. I say, if you have any questions, here's someone on our pastoral staff they would like to talk with you. You're welcome to send emails. You're, you're welcome to ask questions. But we need to be cautious when we're asking questions as to what spirit by which we are asking those questions. It's one thing to ask a question about how we do things. It's another thing to have a spirit of criticism. Well, here I am, the great church inspector, and I'm here to check out to this church, right? <laughs> and this is what a lot of people do. They visit one time and they go, hmm, I don't like that guy, I don't like what he's saying, I'm gonna send an email, right? I'm gonna tell him how wrong he is, how wrong what he's done is, and on and on it goes. And it's, it's really quite arrogant, is it not? To, to act in this way and to have this spirit of constant criticism. And as believers, we forget this, we're all on the same dang team, right? 
We are all working for the same goal. More people in heaven, less people in hell. It is that simple. But we forget this. And we're like, well, I don't know if I like the music or the temperature in this room, right? <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be shocked at the things people complain about. Shocked. And so humility is at the core of this. And we talk about humility quite a bit. Humility, the, the best definition of humility is a proper estimation of who you are. A proper estimation. That means that we can acknowledge what we're good at. You know, it's, it's not arrogant for Tiger Woods to be like, I'm a good golfer. Everyone, yes, you're a good golfer. You have a proper estimation of your golfing skills. You're probably the best that's ever played, right? It's, it's not wrong for him to say that he is good at golf. But even when we acknowledge our good things, proper humility is also acknowledging that we are deficient in some things. So when we understand that we have deficiencies, we can learn from people, whether they be older than us or wiser than us or more experienced in whatever the thing is that people are doing. And this is why the book of Zechariah says, not to despise the days of small things. There's nothing wrong with starting off on the bottom and working your way up. But we live in a culture, right? where a 22-year-old gets a bachelor's degree, they walk out of college and they're like, where's my 4,000 square foot house and my BMW, right? And I need to live exactly like my parents. And it's like, wait a second. It took them 30 years to get that 4,000 square foot house and the BMW. It, took, it, takes, it takes time to get there. Don't despise the process. Don't despise the days of small things. Because if we will work through the process and honor those who have come before us, God will eventually honor you too. God will lift you up. God will make you into a leader, but we have to first work through this maturation process, right? And part of that maturation process, and this is a really, really great scripture for American culture, be quick to listen, slow to speak. If you, listen, if, if, if you're an atheist in this room, and I'm not picking on you or making fun, but if, you, if this is the only thing you take from the Bible, right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak. It will absolutely change your life. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus Christ or not. This is just a good principle of living in the world. We not only live, you and I, in a culture that expects instant gratification, <laughs> instant influence, right? I'm an influencer. Of whom, right? We, we instant reward. But we are so quick to speak when we should be listening. I said this a couple of weeks ago. We live in a culture to where whoever screams and kicks the loudest wins. That's, that's American culture right now. It doesn't matter what you're saying. It just matters if you're saying it really, really loud and over the person you're talking to. And this is why we don't learn anything new. But listen, if we're humble... And if we're confident in who we are in God, God gives us not only wisdom, he gives us influence. And, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, discernment. And then if we are wise, and if we discern what is right and wrong, he will give us that influence in time. But we have to be willing to absorb knowledge. Absorb, absorb knowledge. What was it? The, the, the great philosopher Bono said, it's hard to listen while you preach, Right? It's hard to listen to people when you're constantly just yelling at them and telling them what to do. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. And then we are to cast all of our cares on him. We, we grossly misinterpret this scripture sometimes. People will say, well, I prayed about my finances. I'm not working, but I cast my cares on him. And I'm like, that's not what that means. That's not what that scripture means. 
Casting our cares on him means that we are to do what we're supposed to do as Christians, and then we have faith that Jesus is going to honor that and to come through. So cast literally means to, everyone knows what this word means, to, to throw things on someone, on someone else. So we're told to cast our cares on him when we're humble, when we trust in him, we don't have to live in fear, we don't have to live in constant anxiety and worry, we cast that on God, right? Because we've put our faith in him. And we know that God's love is constant. We know that God's concern for us is constant. We know that God is not indifferent to the fact that we struggle and that we hurt and then we go through hard times, but he desires active trust in us, active humility. And we have to be humble enough to say, listen, that we need you, God. We cannot do it without you. Fun historical fact, you know, the Western world is the first civilization in the history of humanity to entertain the notion that there is no God. We're the first ones. Go back and study it historically, right? You can study the Assyrians and the Persians and the Egyptians and the Romans and the Greeks and the Babylonians, and you can go back all throughout human history. And the only group of people that have entertained the notion that there is nothing bigger than me is the Western world. That's us. Even if people believed in false gods, they at least believed that there was something bigger than them that they should be dependent on. We are the first people to say, no, we're the top of the chain. And that is extremely arrogant. That's why we're falling apart at the rate that we are, right? Because we have to step back and go, I have to cast my cares on something bigger than me. But if we don't believe there's anything bigger than us, you know who has to carry it all? We do. And we're incapable, right? That was good, wasn't it? That was good. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Got my affirmation fixed for the weekend. Thank you so much. All right, last part. <laughs> One of my favorite verses right here. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by fellow believers all throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered for a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, or Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So the important thing and the reason why I like verse eight of this chapter so much is that we have a tendency in the United States is Christians, and I'm not just trying to pick on the US today, but this is where we live, right? We have a tendency as Christians in the United States to think that we are more intellectual than to believe in something like the devil. And even Christians often talk about Jesus, we talk about eternity, we will even talk about angels and we will talk about being blessed spiritually and things like that. But when it comes to the conversation of having an adversary, we just don't like to go there. And if you have ever been in martial arts, if you've ever boxed, Rule number one, don't ever take your eyes off your opponent. You need to know where your opponent is and how they move and how they operate. So verse eight is extremely important. We either forget 
or we have not been taught that you have a very game opponent, the devil. And so the command to be sober-minded, the command to be alert is extremely relevant in a society like ours that promotes intoxication from every corner. This is not just drugs and alcohol, which we are bombarded by that. We're about to decriminalize marijuana across the entire United States. That's going in front of Congress right now. I don't know if you guys know this. It's virtually decriminalized all over the United States already. You can go to any gas station in town and get Delta 8 and all kinds of different variants of marijuana and get high off that. You can do that anyways. I read an article yesterday in Colorado. They're about to legalize hallucinogenic shrooms because that's going to make society wonderful, isn't it? Already in in places like Portland and Seattle, they have legalized certain amounts of cocaine and heroin, and you can Google images of the certain neighborhoods where they have sequestered, in the name of freedom, they have sequestered all these drug addicts into certain neighborhoods, and so you'll see pregnant women laying on the ground with needles popping out of their forearms, and, and this is it, right? And this is what's promoted to you as freedom. Freedom, this is good, right? Addiction is freedom in someone's economy, but anyways, We're promoting things like that, but it's not just that. Man, we have a society where we are intoxicated with affirmation. We're addicted to little hearts and little thumbs. We're addicted to that. There are people who will take their lives because they don't get enough of those things. We are addicted to that affirmation. We're addicted to lust. We're addicted to pleasure. We're addicted to food. We're addicted to money. We're addicted to all kinds of things. So we receive this, this, this promotion of intoxication from all over. And when we are not sober-minded, we are incapable of recognizing that the devil has gotten close. And then we sit back, and when our marriages are destroyed and our families have fallen apart and we're broke and we're depressed, and we go, how did this happen? Because we haven't been in a clear mind, because we haven't used sound judgment, right? And this is what the Bible says you have been given a spirit of not a spirit of being afraid of evil or anxious about what's going on in the world, says this in the Bible. We've been given a spirit of sound judgment, of a clear mind. So not only does intoxication of any kind dull our ability to recognize evil, it also becomes an idol in our life, and that breaks the first of the Ten Commandments. Place no other things above me. So whenever we run to a drug, and I'm really disappointed with how many Christians promote this, right? Well, I need this. You need it? You need this, right? When as a Christian, we should know that our go-to for security, stability, contentment, and peace should be our savior, not something we smoke or drink or not something that gives us comfort by ingesting massive amounts of it or whatever the case may be. And I'm not trying to be mean to you. I had addiction in my life and I don't think it's God's desire for you to live in that because it becomes a dependency on something other than your savior. And that is idol worship according to the Bible. And that's rule number one, place no other things above me. And this is what happens in us if we're not careful. And again, we are bombarded with this in our society. So what do we do about the roaring lion, right? This adversary. In order to to, to overcome the devil who wants to devour anything good in your life, the Bible says he comes for one purpose, to steal, kill, destroy. That's what the devil wants to do in your life. In, In order to defeat him, we have to resist him and stand firm in the faith. That means that we have to to be grounded, not only in the word of God, the, the teachings, the principles, the wisdom, the direction of this book and by the leading of the Holy Spirit in us. And to know that we're not alone. 
that we have brothers and sisters in the faith to help us when we struggle. So to resist and stand up against the devil, we have to draw power from Christ, which means we need to be in an obedient relationship with Christ, which means if we're not living righteously, the book of James says the prayers of righteous people avail much. That would lead us logically to believe that the prayers of unrighteous people don't avail much, right? Everyone can understand this logic. And so what that means is if we're not living in an obedient relationship with Jesus, we cannot expect to draw power from the Holy Spirit. It is only when we're living in an obedient relationship with him that we can get power from the Holy Spirit. And so what we've done in the United States is instead of trying to, to be delivered of a sinful lifestyle, we think that we can be saved and just manage our sinful lifestyle. And this is not biblical. And this is why so many of you are frustrated and struggling. And then, and then you realize that your life has been devoured because we are not choosing to walk in obedience to Christ. And then we go, well, how did this happen? How did I not see the devil sneak up on me? when we're not in clear, sound mind, right? So this is also why we need each other because sometimes we are, we, are, we are in a state to where we can't see clearly, but our brother can or our sister can. And this is why we walk in community. The church is vital. This is why Paul said, some follow Apollo, some follow me, some follow Peter, and then some say they follow Jesus. What he means by that is, it's wrong to say you follow a human, right? You can have a pastor and, and I hope that you guys trust me on some level and that you can follow me as a shepherd to some level, but I'm not your hope, right? And, and neither is any pastor in this world. So that's wrong. It's also wrong to not have any authority over you at all in this world. So whenever people say, well, I just follow Jesus, I don't have to go to church. You're foolish, not only are you foolish, that's not biblical. Paul talks about this. Nowhere in this book can you find from the very beginning to the very end where this book doesn't tell you that the people of God should get together at least once a week to worship and then meet in small group throughout the week. It is consistent throughout the whole Bible. It is so important to have Christian community. And, and what that does is one, it has to be a priority in your life. I'm gonna tell you, whenever we see people slip away in their relationship with God, their attendance at church is typically correlates to that. You need to have church because this is where we can be vulnerable. This is where we hear biblical teaching. This is where we get godly leadership. This is where we can be held accountable by other brothers and sisters at the church that can hold us accountable and, and push us forward when we don't have much strength. We need this. In fact, the book of Hebrews says we need this more and more and more as the second coming of Christ returns. We need this. And so not only has God called us to his eternal glory in Christ, which means heaven, right? God is beckoning us to heaven. Not only is he beckoning us to heaven, he is so good to give us all the tools we need to live this very difficult and confusing life and to stand firm in our faith until we get to heaven. Not only does God say, I want to be with you, he gives us all the tools for us to be with him until we enter into our eternity. And yes, you're gonna suffer for a little while. The Bible is crystal clear on this. If you're devoted to Jesus, you'll suffer in some way because of your devotion to Jesus. But the reward, this is so important. It's so simple, but it's so important. 
The permanent reward of heaven outweighs any temporary suffering you may go through in this life. So if eternity is this room, your life on earth is one of the fibers in this carpet. That's how small it is in comparison to eternity. And I don't care if your life is suffering from day one of birth till if you live to be 119 years old and it's been tough the whole time. If you suffered the whole time for Christ, you will not be thinking about it at all in your eternity. It will be too good, right? For you to even be thinking about how rough life was. Oh, I'm going through it. If you go through it forever. That's why one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is from the last chapter of Habakkuk, when it says, even if the fig tree doesn't bloom, even if the olive tree never produces any more olives, I will still stand by God, right? Because Habakkuk understood what his eternity was. Even if this life sucks from here on out, God is good, right? And God is faithful to reward me in eternity. And I think as Christians, we need to remember that sometimes. The last thing Paul writes about, and it's interesting, if you're reading this, it says, she who is in Babylon sends you this letter. Who in the heck is he talking about? Well, the she is the church. Babylon was Rome. That was a code word for Rome. So Paul briefly mentioned Silas and Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. It wasn't literally his son, but it was like a, you know, his, his, someone that he was raising up. These were two men that traveled with Paul. They traveled with Peter. Of course, Mark contributed to, to helping write the Bible, wrote the book of Mark. And he calls the church she, and he calls Rome Babylon. Uh, historically, Babylon, if you go back into to the book of Genesis Babylon was kind of the first rebellious empire and city. And all throughout the Bible and even to, to, to today, we use Babylon as kind of a, a, an example of evil. And so that's what he's calling Rome. And it's code. The reason why he wrote it in code is if someone gets this, they don't know where he's writing from, right? They don't know that he's talking about Rome, but he's referring to an evil Babylon, if you will. So let's go back to this point made in the last section in verse eight. The first thing that we need to remember is even though Jesus ultimately won the war, the fact that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, he conquered death and the grave, he conquered the powers of hell, that we can live in freedom, we can be saved, we can be with him in eternity. He has already paid the price for our salvation if we accept that salvation. He has already done that. But even if we have accepted his free gift of salvation, you have to understand that every single day is a battle. It is a spiritual battle. And so the reason we must live alert, the reason we must live sober-minded, the reason why we must live intentional, purposeful lives is because the devil wants to rip your family apart. The devil wants to rip you apart. The devil wants to tear apart your, 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 your mindset, your peace. He wants to destroy you. He wants to drive you to despair, right? You have an enemy that hates you. And here's the thing, we have to understand, and it's not that we're gonna be perfect, but we have to be clear-minded. Any door that we leave open is an opening for Satan to creep in. Let me give you a real-world example. That if you find yourself as a married woman talking to that married man at your work all the time, even though at first it seems harmless, there is a gate that is slightly opening. And the devil can creep into such gate and it moves from we talk a lot to we get lunch one day to we exchange numbers, we exchange pictures, and then we meet after work, 
Oh, Corey, being legalistic, right? Being, being a little hypersensitive there, aren't you? Am I? When we open that door and we allow certain things in our home that we let our kids see, right? When we open up certain entertainment that promotes things that's evil and vile and disgusting and violent, and then we sit back and we go, well, why are kids shooting kids all the time? I don't know, what kind of video games are you letting them play? What gates have you opened? What doors have you opened for the devil to slip in? Be sober, be clear-minded because you have an adversary and he's always looking for a means in, always looking for a means in. We also have to make sure on whatever level that we're at that we lead with integrity. You should desire honest, genuine, and humble, and challenging pastors. You should desire that. You should desire a leader that pushes you a little bit to be better. Any good coach will do that, right? You're doing push-ups and you get to whatever number it is. Now, oh, you okay? Just go ahead and stop. <laughs> it's not what a good coach does. Come on, you can do better than that. You're stronger than that. And that's what builds you up. And the problem now, and the Bible warns of this, is that there will come a time when people just wanna hear what they wanna hear. And that's why we're so weak, because we've never been, we've never been pushed to do more spiritual push-ups. We've never been pushed to stretch our limits. Instead, we have such a spirit of offense. How dare he? I have people, not a lot, I don't get as much hate mail as maybe it comes off that I say, but every once in a while, Someone will show up, they'll hear me one time, right? And send me an email about how offended they are. And they said, you said this. And I said, all I did was read what Peter wrote. If you got a problem, if you make it to heaven, take it up with Peter. I, I mean, listen, if the Bible offends you, I don't, I don't know if you're saved. If the listen, and as a Christian, you shouldn't be offended. There shouldn't be anything that offends you as a Christian. You should be confident in who you are with God. Christians are way too sensitive, way too sensitive, way too offended. If you're confident in who you are in the Lord, you don't have to walk on a fence all the time, please. You should desire someone to push you to be better, right? But Christians who lead in any capacity, that's all of you, lead by example. Don't lord your authority over people. Don't abuse the influence you have. Don't be greedy, don't be power hungry. Lead like Jesus led. The creator of the universe that could have zapped everyone out of existence got on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. This is how we lead. By example, not by abuse, not by greed, not by power hungry. Listen, we must also protect the truth at all costs. Without an anchor, we drift anywhere. And this is the problem with Christianity in the United States is we're so busy doing night at the movies in church instead of teaching the Bible that no one knows what is right and no one knows what is wrong. Without the truth of the word of God, there is no freedom, there is no salvation. This contains the instructions by which we are saved, by which we know the truth. This is so important. Listen to me, there, there was a, a, I've said this story many times, but it's a good story, so I like telling it. 
There's a friend of mine that I have that he works in the White House. He's been in the White House since 2016. He was a secret service in Nashville before that, came to church here and we became uh, pretty good buddies. And I would go eat lunch with him periodically in Nashville. I've told this story many times, but one of the times I went down to Nashville to the secret service place in an unmarked building and you know I'm wearing like a cure shirt and cut off shorts and I got patted down like 12 times, but got into the secret service building and my buddy Kelvin at his desk, he had a cubicle. He had a stack of counterfeit $100 bills, super thick. And I walked up and he goes, Corey, have you ever held counterfeit $100 bills? And I said, well, I don't really hold a lot of real $100 bills, but can I, can I see that? And so I'm holding, I'm holding this stack, probably an inch thick of counterfeit 100s, and I can't tell the difference. And he says, Corey, do you know how they teach us to identify counterfeits? I said, no, how do they teach you? And he says, we handle the real thing a lot. Listen, listen. The only way that we can spot the lies in the world around us is you must know the truth. You must handle the truth a lot. And that's how we spot the lies that are coming at us. And the problem with Christianity in America is, is pastors have not taught the truth. Therefore, their congregation doesn't know how to spot the lies. This is the problem. Let me ask you this, do we have a spirit of cooperation? Do we strive to live harmoniously? Do we strive to live in peace? Do we strive to work together as a team to advance the kingdom of God? Are we slow to speak and quick to listen, knowing that whatever stage we're in, whether we be new believers or have been believers for 35 years, that we always have something to learn? not just in faith, but in any walk of life. Man, there's things you can learn from your 13-year-old kids, right? How to do certain things on your iPhone. Just give it to your 13-year-old, and they're like, okay, that's how you do that. And true, true um, um, humility is a proper estimation of who we are. Listen, as Christians, we have to, we have to present ourselves honestly. And that means that when we present ourselves, you know, like, world game changer. I'm like, you single-handedly have changed the world. That's how you present yourself. And this comes off hypocritical. It comes off disingenuous. It, 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 we have to present ourselves honestly. And so we need to make sure we don't go to the extremes of self-deprecation. Because I'm going to be honest with you, it's quite unattractive, is it not? When you have these people who are like, oh, I'm so ugly, I'm ugly, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. And it's like, it's, it's really unattractive, Right? It it's really doesn't make me wanna be around you when you're constantly self-deprecating. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I think it's offensive to God that created you Amen. to constantly self-deprecate and to knock your worth down. So we don't need to go to that extreme. We also don't need to go to arrogance. Arrogance and Christianity should be like oil and water. They should never mix. And that should not be a part of us as well. So we live in a proper estimation of who we are we must also not despise the days of small things or the days of beginnings, knowing that if we are humble, if we are submitted to the authority that God has put in our lives, God will mature us, he will grow us, he will give us authority. But I'm gonna tell you this, if we do not honor authority, God will never trust you with authority. If we do not honor people who are influential, we will never be influential. God will not give you that, right? And so we need to not despise the days of steps one, two, three. We'll eventually get to step 10 if we're humble, but don't despise the process. Don't despise the maturation. Don't despise the building up. So we must be humble and we must know that we cannot make it without God. 
You cannot make it without God. You can't do it financially. You can't do it as, as relationally. You can't do it in your marriage. You can't do it with your children. We cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Do we have a responsibility? Yes. We live in obedience to the word of God. And if we're living in obedience to the word of God, don't, you don't have to live in constant anxiety or fear of the future or, or, or despair or any of that. You cast that on God. If you're living in a relationship with him, we're not to live in those things, right? Cast your cares on him. If we're honoring him and obedient to him, don't worry about it. He's gonna take care of you. He's faithful. Cast that care on him because he cares for you. He loves you. And here's the thing. It is impossible to stand firm. We have to stand firm. And as the world gets more and more confusing, more and more chaotic, more and more extreme, we have to stand firm. But it is impossible to stand firm when we are not in our sober mind. And I'm not just talking about drugs and alcohol. I'm talking about anything that inebriates us. So we must be not only of sound mind, we must be of pure mind if we're to resist evil. And we must also draw power from the Holy Spirit. That's why God gives us the gift of wisdom. That's why he gives us courageous faith. That's why he gives us discernment because we need it. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the counselor and the comforter because we draw power from God, right? The biggest lie the world tells you is follow your heart. If you follow your heart, you will get into serious minutia. It's a fancy way of not swearing, right? You will get into some bad stuff if you follow your heart. That's why the book of Jeremiah says the heart is the most deceptive part of you. Don't follow that. Follow the Holy Spirit that should reside in your heart. That's where we draw our power from. Not from ourselves, right? Just dig in deep. You dig in deep, you're gonna find some ugly stuff in there. Let the Holy Spirit come in and take that area over and follow that. Pray, seek the wisdom of God. It's also impossible to stand firm if we're not anchored in this word. Like I said, it is impossible to know counterfeit unless you know what is real and authentic. That means we have to know this word. We must hold on to this truth every single day. You also need community. You are not designed to do this alone. I made a joke last night that I would look into the cameras and talk to all the people who, don't, who, who aren't coming into church, right? And I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm glad they're watching me on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. But if you live in a driving range of one of our campuses, you need to be at church. You need to be at church. And I'm not saying that to condemn you. It's not the same sitting on your couch. I don't care what anyone says. You need to be around people. You need to be seen. You need to be told that you're loved. You need to be held accountable. Iron sharpens iron, right? And so you need to be around other people. If we will love God, I just wanna leave this as an encouragement. If we will love God, if we will love other people, if we will stand firm in our faith, here's the caveat, as aliens and strangers, that's what you are. You are an alien and a stranger in this world until Christ comes back. But if we will love God, if we will love people, if we will stand firm in the faith as we are aliens and strangers in our Babylon, if we will do that in our present Babylon, I believe with everything in me that God is faithful to a reward. If we will endure, if we will stand firm now, 
I would, I would bank everything on it. I'd bank my own life. I'd bank everything on the fact that one day Christ is going to come back and he will deal with evil and he will reward those that have placed their trust in him, who have stirred firm in the faith, who have endured, as the Bible says, until the end. And whatever temporary hell you have to go through now will pale in comparison to the permanent heaven that you will receive. If you get a chance, go back to the end of Revelation. And, and we have all of our Revelation series online if you wanna watch them. But if you go back to the end of Revelation when it, when it describes the new Jerusalem, right? We live in Babylon now, but one day we're going to inherit a new Jerusalem. And it says that the city will come down and rest on a new earth and there will be a new universe. And then it says in the book of Revelation that the, the gates of the city are always open. You know what's beautiful about that is not only does God give us this beautiful city that we will reside in with this beautiful garden and his throne in the center of it, and we don't need a sun anymore because the light of God shines and permeates through everything. Not only that, the gates are open because we inherit a whole new galaxy, a whole new universe, a whole new planet, and God says, go explore. The gates are open. If you will just hold on now, God has something so much bigger for you in the future. I just wanna encourage you, no matter how hard it gets, be anchored, stand firm. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are not a believer in this room, or maybe you're very new, but you just have questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here. Okay, he's on the corner of the stage. We're not offended by questions. We're, 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 we'll do our best. We don't know the answer to everything. But if you have any questions, come up here and talk to Pastor Mike, please. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, for you, for your family, for your job, for health, it, it doesn't matter. Please don't be alone. Let someone pray with you. They'd love to pray with you. The last thing is all the way around this room where we see a lamp on a table. And if you're sitting in the middle, there's actually some baskets on the posts um, so you can kind of avoid the line a little bit because it gets long. There's communion all the way around this room. And if you have asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, you can partake in the bread and the wine which represents the body and blood of Jesus. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ reminds us not only that God loves us, but something Jesus said before he left his disciples in bodily form is he said, in my father's house are many rooms. And if that weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. He's basically saying, I have a place that's promised for you. Just hold on, just hold on. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you. I thank you so much for, for every man, woman, child in this building. God, everyone watching online. I pray that you protect us and keep us safe. God, strengthen us, Lord. Let us be tethered not only to you, God, but Lord, let us be tethered to the truth in your word. Let us stand firm, God, regardless of how much pushback we get. Lord, let us understand that we do have an adversary, but if we have a relationship with you, God, we should not be in fear of that adversary. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Bless everyone, God, until we meet again. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.